if you have your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, this is one of those, quote, hard passages. It's not only hard to apply, it's really hard to understand. And a lot of people, therefore, skip it, but you really can't skip it and do justice to the rest of the book of Hebrews. It's admittedly hard because the writer of Hebrews, who we really don't know who he is, he was about to talk about Melchizedek in uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. And then he says, but you are too slow to learn, and you are still babes, and you are not ready for the meat, you're still on the milk. As a matter of fact, people have to teach you the ABCs. Well, he's taught them the milk, and he's taught them the ABCs, and now he's back to the hard stuff about Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to be able to tell you everything that's in this chapter, and maybe not most everything that's in this chapter. We're going to fly over it and make some big uh, points where you can see the, uh, the highlights of it. Let's read, read the whole chapter, so settle in for a little bit. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think about how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in one case, a tenth is collected by the people who die, but in the other by him who is declared to be living. One might say that Levi, who collects a tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could be obtained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for a priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood changed, the law must be changed also. He whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And that we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of a power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside, therefore, because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. Other prophet, others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest, priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he's a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One is holy, blameless, pure, set aside from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints all high priests, men, and their weaknesses. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. The reading of God's word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, there are passages that are easy to understand and comprehend, and this is not one of them. And so more than ever, we need your insight, and we need you to keep our attention uh, focused upon what's ahead of us and before us, and open our ears that we might hear the gospel change our hearts, that we might trust Christ and live for him. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of my most beneficial classes, whether you could tell it or not, was I took homiletics, which is a fancy word for preaching, under Roy Taylor. And Roy Taylor gave us a grid by which you could basically construct any sermon, and it's, it's extremely valuable. But one of the things that Roy did in class was he told us about his preaching experiences. And he said he had gone to a church that was pretty vocal. I think it was an African-American church. And he said as he preached, people would say, Tell them, tell them, you know, uh, tell them, brother. Amen. Preach it, brother. And he said he got to a point where he had to make a historical detour and had to get into some kind of uh, geographical and chronological facts that needed to be explained before he applied the passage. And as he was going down there, he heard one lady in the back say, Lord, help him, help him. Well, this morning, you might want to say, Lord, help him, help him, because I would appreciate the help. You look at this passage under three headings. I think it will really help you. The first is, who is Melchizedek? The second is, how is he compared to Jesus? And the third is, so what? Let's be practical. Who is Melchizedek? Well, to understand who Melchizedek is, you kind of have to have an understanding of the Old Testament, especially that of Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, you have Lot living near Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that Abraham and Lot had to separate because the land would not hold or, or take care of all of their crops and all of their cattle and stuff like that, sheep and goats. And so Lot chose to live towards Sodom. Well, that obviously was an attractive place full of riches and things like that. And so a, a coalition of kings, a five kings, sweeps down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all the goodies and they take Lot with them captive. He's now being held as ransom, you want to say. And Abraham finds out about it. And Abraham gathers up 318 people. That's precise. Not about 300, not about 350, just 318. 
proof that the Bible is historically talking about a fact. And he takes these 318 men and he goes to rescue Lot. He rescues him. He gets Lot's and gets all the goodies and he's bringing back all the bounty. And out of the blue, in Genesis 14, verse 18, 19, and 20, we have this mysterious figure named Melchizedek just shows up. The Bible says he's the king of the Most High God, which meant that obviously he was a priest of God. He was one who came and Abraham saw he was great and he gave him a tithe. He gave him uh, what belonged to the Lord. Uh, through the Lord's people, he gave it to the Lord. And so he gave it through uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek not only took the tithe, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, Abraham, two chapters early, had just been said that he would be a blessing to the nations. And here Abraham was being blessed by this guy named Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek uh, means a king of righteousness. Sadik is righteousness, and, and Malek is king. King of righteousness. And he's also the king of Salem. And the king of Salem, eventually Salem became Jerusalem. So here you have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. And so now you go back to Hebrews chapter 7, and you know who he's talking about. And he doesn't mention a lot of that, but he mentions that, that Melchizedek is without father or mother. So you go, without father or mother, and the immediate thing you think about is what? He's a pre-incarnational figure of Christ. You know, he is, uh, he is the incarnate Son of God before he becomes the Son of God in uh, the room of the Virgin Mary. But the passage says he resembles the Son of God. Melchizedek and Jesus are similar, but they're not the same. So some people say, well, maybe he's an angel. Maybe some kind of supernatural spiritual being that Calvin even says just seems to drop out of heaven into Genesis 14. But what it means when it says he's without mother or father probably means he's without genealogy. Genealogy to the Jews were very important. That if you were to study the book of Genesis closely, you would notice there are ten genealogies dispersed through the book of Genesis because everybody had to prove who their daddy was. You know, it's kind of like in the South. As soon as you meet somebody, you go, who's your daddy? Where are you from? Do I know somebody? Well, in Israel, it had to be, are you descended from so-and-so? And you can't be a priest until you're descendant from Levi. So it's probably just saying, this guy's different. Everybody that is somebody has a genealogy. But this guy, greater than Abraham, because he blesses Abraham, Abraham gives him a tithe. This guy's a king of Salem, king of peace. He's righteous. This guy's different because he's a type. He's a type of Christ. What you usually think of when you talk about a type of Christ is you have Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a shadow. Hang with me, okay? Wake up. Uh, Melchizedek is the, the shadow and Jesus is the reality. Theologically, you ought to say this, that Melchizedek is the type, and Jesus is the antitype. He's the fulfillment of that type. But for this to be a type, for Melchizedek to be a shadow, there has to be a reality. 
There has to be an eternal reality that Melchizedek is reflecting the eternal Son of God who is ordained to be our high priest forever. It's amazing. When you look at this passage, you're not supposed to see that Melchizedek is our focus, but Jesus is our focus. That Jesus is the one that's the reality behind this individual that's the king of Salem and righteousness altogether. There is a man by the name of Johannes Bavink who is a missiologist, a theologian, a professor, and an author. Uh, he taught at the Free, Free University of Amsterdam, and he studied particularly different religions in different countries, especially in Asia, Eastern Asia. And he noticed one thing. Every culture had these enduring realities. They had these, and I like this, this magnetic point of human consciousness. Doesn't that make you feel smart? They had these magnetic points of human consciousness. But what he meant by that was this. He meant as he studied every culture and every religion and every people group, he said there remained these stories and legends that all wanted the same thing. And you know what they wanted? A king. That every culture, every religion looked for a king to come and to set things right and to make peace in the world. And the reason all of those things, all of those cultures do that is because there is a king. There's an eternal king that casts a shadow over all the earth who is one day going to reign and bring righteousness and peace to all the world. And we long for that indeed. And so this writer says, Every culture must therefore write about him because literature, poetry, and song, and even false religion is an idolatrous expression of a true desire of the human heart. We want a king. So Melchizedek was touching on that fact that we want a king that will bring peace to our hearts and into our world. How does Melchizedek compare to Christ? How does he resemble him? Verse 3. You know, before there was the computer where you could go on the Internet and you can compare things. You know, you'll have five-star things and four-star things and three-star. You remember? You know that. You've done that. Well, before that, there was a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And it would come out at Christmas. Y'all remember that? It would be big old fat thing. And, you know, it had all the toys in there, and you'd drop hints to your mom, which my mom never got a hint. She's a terrible Christmas giver. But anyway... And you would go to, you know, after you got a little older, you look at, not at toys, you started looking at bikes, or and then you're a little older, you know, look at washing machines. And they had good, better, and best, right? Good, better, and best. And what are you going to buy? You know, the salesman's going to say, okay, for a few more dollars, you can have the best. No, just give me the good thing, you know? And what we have here is Jesus is the best. And these group of Jewish Christians are tempted to leave Jesus and to leave the Christian faith. And so what the writer is doing is says, hey, Jesus is better than them because Jesus makes things perfect or he completes the task. It says in verse 11, if the old priest could have made everything perfect, why did there need to be another priest to come? It says in verse 18 that uh, the law made nothing perfect. Uh, the law made 
the Levites to be the priests, and yet the real priest, the high priest, was not of the tribe of Levi, it was the tribe of Judah, which was Jesus came from. So even it says the law had to be changed. And so you get into these dangerous things, and I feel like I, if I have some theologians in here that I could be dragged up into Presbytery and brought on charges of heresy saying the law has to be changed. The Bible says the law had to be changed. And it wasn't that the law was bad, but the law was never meant to be permanent. It was always meant to point us to Christ. It was always meant to show us our sin and to show us our Savior. And once we came to know that Savior, it pointed the way to walk. But it was never intended to save. It never was intended to be the, the permanent thing that some people would like to make it. The dietary law was done away with when Jesus said, All food is clean. You know, we can eat ham and biscuits now. You know, we can eat catfish, things that were forbidden by the dietary law. We can walk further on Sunday than they could. All sorts of things. And it wasn't that the law was bad. The law had planned obsolescence in it. God intended for it to become obsolete as to the civil law and the ceremonial law. Jesus can make things perfect where the law can't nor the Levites can't. Jesus was appointed high priest and didn't become it because of his ancestry. The law established that the Levites would become the priests. And so the only qualification you had to have to be a priest was to be a Levite. You didn't have to pass an exam. You didn't have to go before Presbytery. You didn't have to go to priestly kindergarten or priestly high school or priestly theology school. You didn't have to be wise. You didn't have to be likable. You didn't have to be gentle or full of mercy. You should be those things. But all you had to be was a Levite. And so you probably got some pretty bad priests, don't you imagine? That they were there for life. Well, really, they were there to 50. And their retirement age was 50. I'm a couple years beyond that. And most people think the reason they retired at 50 is because of their eyesight. They couldn't read the law anymore. But anyway, Jesus wasn't a priest because of his ancestor, but God appointed him a priest. That God said there has to be a high priest, and so I'm going to appoint Jesus of the tribe of Judah to be the high priest. He's going to be sinless and holy and harmless and undefiled and above sinners. He's going to be the perfect high priest. He's going to be sympathetic and wise and understanding and approachable and gracious and full of mercy. That's the one I'm going to appoint. Not only is Jesus able to make things perfect and Jesus is appointed by God by an oath, but Jesus is eternal. Jesus has an indestructible life. That's what it says, an indestructible life. And I think it means indestructible because they tried to destroy it. They killed Jesus. He was in the tomb for three days. He rose gloriously from the dead, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He doesn't die. Every other priest appointed died. From the time you had the high priest appointed to the time they built the first temple, you had 18 high priests. From the first temple to the second temple, which was destroyed in 70 A.D., you had 300 priests. So you had 300 plus high priests 
by the time this was written. And what the writer is saying is, now you have a high priest forever. He will never develop senility. He will never be uncompassionate. He lives forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's your high priest. You'll never have a 27-year-old seminary student on training as your pastor like I once was. You have a high priest forever. Jesus is sinless. The other priests are sinful. And a sinful priest has to take care of his own sins before he takes care of your sins. I don't know how to even comprehend this except, you know, as Presbyterians, we say debts instead of trespasses. And we do weddings a lot of time, and we do the Lord's Prayer. The other churches will say, why do y'all say debts and we say trespasses? Because we're always thinking about money, you know. Uh, no, because that's what the King James says in uh, Matthew chapter 6. But just think that we have a limited amount of money. Think of debt as sin as debt. And we have a limited amount. And if I have to pay my debt, am I going to have enough to pay yours and yours and yours? Surely not yours. And Jesus is without sin. And he has the riches of grace and mercy to pay all of our sins by his once-for-all sacrifice. My friend Brian Habig preached on this passage and he told something I thought was really helpful to understand it. He talked about things that we kind of want to go back to because these Jewish Christians wanted to go back to Judaism and leave all this behind when Jesus was better. And he said that uh, he, he thought about his wife who liked to watch this show called Precious Periods in History. I've never heard of it, but looked it up. And it goes back to those days in England where everybody, you know, dressed with those, you know, those, I don't know what you call those skirts that puff out, and the men always had suits on, and they, they always, you know, drank tea, and they talked different than we do, and they rode in horses and carriages and maybe in these primitive uh, trains and things. And he says, every now and then you get this idea, wouldn't it be good to live in those days? No, it wouldn't be good to live in those days. It'd be terrible to live in those days. And he said he came to realize that when he was sitting in the Atlanta airport. He said there I was eating a nice meal, and I was texting my wife on, on, a, on my cell phone, you know, and putting all the emojis on there. I'm supposed to love you, honey, heart, 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 you know. And, and he said, and I was going to Boston, and I was going to be there before lunch. And he said, if back in the good old days of horse and carriage, it would have taken me a month or more. You see what he's saying is, who wants to go back? Who wants to go back to sacrifices and priests that die and priests that are sinful and priests that are flawed and priests that can't make anything perfect when you have a perfect high priest in Jesus? Why leave? So what? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That's what it says in verse 25. My translation says uh, save completely, but I like uttermost. You just don't all the time say uttermost, do you? 
I'll just use it tomorrow a couple of times. You know, other, uttermost, you know. And remember what I'm about to say. Uttermost means completely. That's what the translation said. But uttermost means completely. Jesus is able to save all the way. He's able to save comprehensively. And that means that Jesus isn't going to save us part of the way and then we are going to fall away and, and lose our salvation. That as Christians, Jesus is going to save us to the uttermost. He's going to get us home. Now that is for people who are truly believers. Those who sincerely hate their sin and love their Savior and rest upon Him alone for salvation. Those people will get home. He's not going to drop you off at the city limits and make you walk the rest of the way. And not only is He going to get you to the uttermost, we need somebody to get us to the uttermost because we sin to the uttermost. We are completely tainted with sin. We are completely tainted with sin in our thoughts, in our words, in our attitudes. And Jesus is able to save us from those sins as well. There is not one sin, not one sin except the rejection of the Holy Spirit, which is a conscious rejection of the gospel, as we talked a couple of weeks ago. There is no sin besides that sin that God is not able to forgive. And you can think about every sin in your whole life, and some of them are terrible and awful. You know, I won't even start listing them. But the blood of Christ can wash them away to the uttermost. Jesus, so what? Jesus can save to the uttermost. Jesus lives forever to intercede for us. What did Jesus come to earth to do? He came to earth, to our planet, to be born a Savior and live a righteous life and die an atoning death and raise from the grave victorious, ascend into heaven, so that when we believe in Him that we might have righteousness clothed on us and we might have our sin put on Jesus and we might be adopted into the family and then He ascends to heaven and He reigns forever and ever. But what is He doing? He's interceding for us. For me and for you. He's interceding that we keep the faith that we fail not. That we see the wisdom of our temptation. That we understand the, the depth of our depravity. He, he under, he, he, he's praying that we will see His persevering hand upon our lives. He's praying that we'll get home. Robert Murray McShane said, If you believe that Jesus Christ was in the next room praying for you, you would could face anything. But he said, He is in heaven praying for you. You probably don't know the name Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney wrote uh, our hymn 24, um, Vassy Immensity, Mirror of Majesty, that hymn, because we didn't have a hymn in the book that talked about the immensity of God, so Ed Clowney just wrote one, you know. That's kind of talent he had. His mother had died, and he was at Westminster Seminary walking across the campus, and he met the famous theologian, John Murray, 
And John Murray knew that his mother had died, and he told Clowney, Ed Clowney, you know, he was sorry to hear about his mother and how was he doing, and, you know, just what you say when you're talking to somebody who's lost somebody. And he said, before you go, let's, let's pray. And right there in the middle of the sidewalk, in the middle of the campus, John Murray was praying for Ed Clowney. And Ed Clowney says, you know, I left there feeling so uplifted to have somebody great like John Murray praying for me. And then I remembered, oh, how foolish can you be? You have Jesus praying for you. Jesus is interceding for us even now. We have a so what? He saves us to the uttermost. He ever lives to intercede for us. And he meets our every need. That's what it says in verse 26. We have such a high priest that truly meets our needs. Now, I think needs are probably very big. You know, you have different needs and I have different needs, but God has given us a high priest that he might meet our needs, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But I think at a deeper level, he's talking about what he's mentioned up here. We need that king. We need that king of righteousness. We need a righteous king who is not only righteous, but is able to give us righteousness when we have faith in him. And we need a king that will bring peace on the world and peace in our heart. And that's what the passage is telling us. You have that king. You don't see him now, but he's reigning now. And he will come and call us to himself. We're not going to sing this hymn because, well, the tune in the hymn book's not very good, to be honest. But uh, just being truthful, okay. But I'd like to close with this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. What a high priest. Why would you ever go anywhere else but to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your Son to be our Savior, our prophet, our priest, our king. Thank you, Jesus, that you ever lived to make intercession for us, burn that into our consciousness. May it comfort us all the days of the week and all the days of our life. And help us to acknowledge that you're king and that we owe you absolute obedience, trust, and we should follow you all the days. So we give ourselves to you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but we sign up again to be your servants and your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.